You are listening to an Elam Christian Center podcast. We hope that you are inspired, encouraged, and empowered by the message you are about to hear. Morena Church, it is great to be with you. I hope your day started a little better than mine. I think Bex might have had a moment of panic when she saw my Instagram story. I started the day by pouring my coffee beans into the water part of my machine. And I did pray a prayer. Lord, please don't let my preach go like that. (laughs) But I'm coffeeed up and ready to go. I am the mum of four kids, and at the moment, one of them is not so keen on praying. And at bedtime, there's been a lot of, nope, I don't want you to pray, I don't want to pray. And I really believe this was Holy Spirit inspiration. God gave me three questions to start asking them. And sometimes their answers aren't always that appropriate and we do need to kind of shift their focus and maybe suggest some other things. But these three questions have been facilitating some really rich bedtimes. And I start by saying, what do you want to thank God for about today? And then I move on to, well, what would you like God to help you with today? And then finally, the question that I do last is, who would you like to pray for? And recently, this particular child has been having some trouble at school, and a kid hasn't been being very nice to them. And on this particular night, I'd picked him up from the bus, and there had been tears, and I said, what had happened? And this kid had deliberately taken their art that they had spent weeks working on and screwed it up and put it in the bin. And so that evening, or soon after, I said to them, why don't we pray for that kid? Why don't we forgive them and pray blessing on them? And I shared a saying that a friend shared with me that behind every bad is a sad. And I said, you know, there's obviously something going on for that kid that they would feel the need to take your art and destroy it. So let's pray for that sad. Well, I was met with a firm no. No, I don't want to pray for that child. I don't want to forgive them. I want payback. I was told. And you know, all humor aside, I think we've all found ourselves in that moment where not only do we not want to forgive, we want payback, we want revenge. Something in us cries out for that score to be settled, for it to be even somehow between us. And we think that if we can get our vengeance, then everything will be okay and we will be able to continue on our merry way. But Jesus says something radically different to us. He says, blessed, happy, happier are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Like all the Beatitudes that have come before this one, it's countercultural. It takes our way of thinking, our logic, and it turns it upside down and inside out. And Jesus says it's not in vengeance, it's not in revenge, it's not in settling the score that you are going to be blessed and find happiness, it's in being merciful. And I really believe that if we will lean into these statements that Jesus makes, that we will know how to live, we will experience the blessed, the abundant life that he says he came to give us in John 10 verse 10. You know, just before the Sermon on the Mount that the Beatitudes kick off, 
Matthew tells us that Jesus went around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And what he unpacks in the sermon is what it looks like to belong and live in and operate under the governance of the kingdom of God. And I want to share how my favorite old school preacher describes these Beatitudes and how they work together. It's Charles Spurgeon, and he says this. He says, together they are a ladder of light, and each one is a step of purest sunshine. Observe carefully, and you will see that each one rises above those which precede it. The first beatitude is by no means as elevated as the third, nor the third as the seventh. But they also mark deepening humility and growing exaltation. In proportion, as men rise in the reception of the divine blessing, they sink in their own esteem and count it their honor to do their humblest works. Not only do the Beatitudes rise one, another, one above another, but they spring out of each other as if each one depended upon all that went before. Each growth feeds a higher growth, and the seventh is the product of all the other six. Mark also in this ladder of light that though each step is above the other and each step springs out of the other, yet each one is perfect in itself and contains within itself a priceless and complete blessing. I really love this description by Spurgeon because it's an invitation to growth. And we are going to be on a lifelong journey of transformation as long as we are in this world. But God's heart is that as we go on this journey, we would go from strength to strength. And so he gives us these principles in the Beatitudes that will facilitate that growth, that will enable us to live out the principles of his kingdom. And if you look at the structure of these Beatitudes, the first four are the internal process that happens when the Spirit awakens someone to their need for God. And then these next four that we're beginning today, they are the fruit, they're the result of having turned our lives over to the Lord. And so what Spurgeon has been saying is he says they rise one above the other and they spring out of each other and they each lead to a new step and stage of growth is that we cannot be merciful unless we have first acknowledged our poverty of spirit, our need for the Lord. That we cannot be merciful unless we have first mourned over our own sin and our own debt and our own wrongdoing towards the Lord. That we cannot be merciful unless we have chosen to take ourselves off the throne and to submit our power and our authority to His and that we cannot be merciful if our hunger, if our appetite is not first and foremost for the things of his kingdom and not for this world. And he says to us, if you've done all of those things, then the first fruit that should mark out your life is mercy. The full life commentary defines mercy as this, as one who has been pardoned for a wrong committed or kindnesses that help the needy. 
If you dig a little deeper into the original language of the words used in this beatitude, you find an attribute that marks out both of these things. And it's this, it's compassion. These words convey the idea of active compassion. And by that I mean, it's not just a fleeting emotion, it's not a there, there, I feel a little bit sorry for you. It's something that moves you and compels you to act differently and to take an action towards somebody else. It goes beyond emotion. The very word itself, compassion, comes from the Latin compati, and it literally means to suffer with. To show mercy is to be moved to such deep compassion that you are willing to pay a price for someone else's wholeness and healing. As I was studying for this message, all the commentaries I read referred to the parable of the Good Samaritan as like the benchmark for what mercy looks like. Mercy is something that you will even show an enemy, and mercy is something that you will carry out until that person is healed and whole and restored. Mercy goes all the way. And we see this in the Beatitudes and the Father's response to us turning towards him. When we come and say, I am not enough, I have a need of a savior, he doesn't leave us poor in spirit, he gives us the kingdom. When we mourn over our sin, he doesn't leave us in condemnation. He gives us comfort. He gives us the gift of Holy Spirit to rebuild our lives. When we come meek, submitting our power to his, we don't end up diminished. He says, you'll inherit the earth. And when we turn our appetites towards him, he doesn't leave us hungry. He fully satisfies God's mercy goes all the way. It completes what it started, and he's asking us to have that same posture to the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm comfortable with the idea of mercy, of showing compassion to someone who is in need, but it's much harder to show that same compassion, that same mercy to someone who has offended me, who has wounded me and hurt me. Our natural response in that situation is much like my son's. I want payback. I want acknowledgement for what you have done. I want to settle the score. You have to pay for what you did to me. And yet mercy and judgment is the primary concern of this particular beatitude. And so Jesus is saying, if you are my disciple, if you belong to the kingdom of God, then you must choose the way of mercy. Because his is a kingdom ruled not by vengeance, but by compassion, by transformative mercy. And he tells in Matthew 18, a parable that demonstrates this truth to us. And it demonstrates it by showing what happens when we don't act in the way of the kingdom. This parable is called the parable of the unmerciful servant. And I want us to spend just a few moments today 
looking at what it teaches us about what we're going to have to understand and cultivate in our lives if we are going to be a people of mercy. Because as we will discover as we read this parable, it is not an optional extra to be merciful, to be a forgiving person in the kingdom. It is a command. Jesus even teaches in Luke 6 that with the measure we use to judge other people, we ourselves will be judged. And so we need to be very sober in our thinking about how we deal with hurts and offences in our lives. So I'm picking up in verse 23, and Jesus has been teaching about what to do if someone has wronged you, and Peter has said, well, how many times do I have to forgive someone? Like, is seven enough? And Jesus has been like, "Uh uh-uh, you just keep going. You keep going, and you keep forgiving. So he says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now you need to understand that one talent back then was roughly 20 years of wages. So this is a huge debt that this man owes. There is no way that he could repay it in his lifetime. It's an impossible debt to carry. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out... He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's three months' wages in comparison. This guy has just been forgiven decades of debt, and he has encountered someone who owes him three months. And it says that he grabbed him, and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. I want to be clear this morning, the Father is not interested in lip service. He is interested in a true heart posture of forgiveness. And like I said before, this is not negotiable for us as believers. This is the ABCs of what we have chosen to do as we follow after Christ. And Jesus makes clear in here that there is a consequence if we refuse to be merciful. It's not that we lose our salvation. 
but it's that we limit the flow of God's mercy and grace in our lives. I want you to note that unlike some parables where an action did result in being thrown out of the kingdom, this man, this unmerciful servant, is not thrown out of the kingdom. He's stuck in a prison of his own making because he's refused to truly receive mercy and grace. And so it's really important that as believers, we understand Jesus is not saying, you have to earn my mercy by being merciful. John Piper says, if that's the case, mercy isn't mercy, it's a wage. What we're talking about is us experiencing the fullness and growing into the likeness of Christ like we are called to be, reflecting his mercy. And so I want to share with you three things this morning that we must understand if we are going to be able to be the people of mercy that God has called us to be. And the first is this, we must understand the debt we ourselves have been forgiven. This servant failed to understand what incredible mercy he had been shown. He had been shown mercy, but I would argue he hadn't received it, that he perhaps thought he was entitled to it and so took it lightly. He hadn't realized the gravity of what he owed his master, and so he took the cancellation of it lightly. The Full Life Commentary says to receive mercy is to become merciful. Like righteousness, mercy is metamorphic. It's character changing. If we have truly received mercy, we will be changed and we will show mercy. This takes us back to the very first beatitude, that we must recognize our own poverty of spirit. We must recognize that each and every one of us owes a debt that we cannot pay the price for. I'm going to be honest with you that I spent the first half of my life not recognizing my need for Jesus. I loved Jesus. I wanted to honor Jesus. I wanted to serve him with my life, but I failed to realize my need for Jesus. You see, I'd grown up in the church, I was a pastor's kid, I'd had a profound encounter with the Holy Spirit in my early teens, and I'd stayed on the straight and narrow. I had kept every rule that I had been given, and I thought I could tick the good girl Christian box. And so while I loved Jesus, I'm going to be honest with you that I often thought, well, I don't really think you needed to die for me, Jesus, because I'm just so good. And my pride kept me blinded to my need for him. And it wasn't until I went through a really difficult season in my 20s and my counselor told me I met my shadow, and I'm going to tell you I didn't like and still don't like my shadow very much. But then I realized that I was as capable of sin. I was as capable of darkness and wrongdoing against the Lord as the next person and it brought me to my knees. And that moment, that realization that I needed Jesus as much as you do, began a journey into freedom and into fullness. But do you know what? While I didn't realize the debt that I myself had been forgiven, I was harsh on myself. 
and I held high expectations of other people. It wasn't that I wouldn't forgive, but I was like the servant measuring, exacting. If we have truly had a revelation of how much we have been forgiven, we will be different. And this servant here, he fails to realize that. And so he makes no movement towards the new. He makes no movement towards the governance of the kingdom. And he holds someone else accountable for a sin that is so much less than his own. So we must first understand the debt that we ourselves have been forgiven. The second thing that we must do is understand what forgiveness is not. You know, I often joke that there's different levels of offences. There's the things that actually happened. You know, when you clarify with the person, they really meant to say the thing that they did. They really meant to do the thing that they did. And it is a very real, deep hurt and wound. Then there are things that we assume. You know, they didn't say hi to me, or we import our own lens onto their actions, and we decide this whole scenario of why they've done the things that they have. But the reality is, whether they're real or imagined, offenses hurt. They wound and they're deep, and something in us cries out for justice, and I believe that that is part of how God wired us. He wired us to desire justice. And so mercy can sometimes feel in conflict with that, and we can feel like, if I forgive, I'm saying that what you did was okay. I'm ignoring it, I'm minimizing it. And I want to tell you today, that is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not about minimizing sin. In the passage before this, Jesus has said to his disciples, if someone sins against you, you need to go one-to-one and confront them about it. If they won't listen to you, take a witness. If they won't listen to the witness, bring them before the fellowship of believers. Sin has to be dealt with. Even in this parable, what is the master doing? He's doing an accounting of what everybody owes. He's not ignoring debts. He's calculated them, he knows exactly what they are, and he is making sure that the accounts are settled. God is a just God. And him asking you to be merciful is not him asking you to ignore what happened. It's him asking you to trust him for justice and to trust him for your own healing. It's also not necessarily restoration. Restoration requires two people equally committed to repentance, equally committed to transformation and doing things differently. But there is a difference between wise boundaries and barriers that have been put up because you are bitter and you want vengeance and you will not forgive. Barriers say keep away. And they don't just keep that person out, they keep anybody out who wants to come close to that part of your life. Boundaries say I've forgiven. I've entrusted you to the Father. I've entrusted myself to the Father. But the wise thing here is to keep a fence in place. So we must understand when God asks us to be merciful that he's not asking us to be a doormat. He's not asking us to ignore something. 
He's asking us to trust him. And that is why we must understand the character of God. It's your third thing. If you want to be a merciful person, you need to understand the character of God. Like I've said, God does not ignore sin. To do so would violate his holiness. He would not be a good God if he looked at the sin and the evil in this world and ignored it and minimized it and said, that's okay. I don't know about you, but I would not want to submit to a God who said that the evil of this world is acceptable. Our God is a just and holy God, but he alone is able to righteously judge. Because in his holiness, his absolute perfection, he is able to balance the need for mercy and justice in a way that in our flawed humanity we will struggle to. And so that's why mercy says, I will show compassion for your brokenness. I will show compassion for the sin that binds you. I will pray for you. I will bless you in the spirit. I may not be able to be in close proximity to you, but I will pray for the mercy of the Father to be poured out upon you. In Christ, the Father has made provision for both mercy and justice to be perfectly met. Romans teaches that the wages of our sin are death. If we were to stand before this master and he was to put before us the account that we would owe, the only price that we could each pay would be our very lives. But Jesus has taken that price. And because of that, the justice for our sin has been met. And we are able to live a life of mercy, a life where we receive the abundance of the kingdom because of the goodness of our God. And the call of being a disciple is to become like the one that we follow. N. Simkins writes this. He says, we are never more like God than when we love those who don't love us. When we refuse to retaliate, even when they're wrong. When we respond to mistreatment with kindness. When we extend generosity to all who need it. And he goes on to tell a story of two brothers, and one had swindled and wronged the other. It's a true story. And the brother who had been wronged, he wanted vengeance, he wanted justice, and he didn't see his brother for some months, and in the intervening time, he became a Christ follower. And he happened upon his brother one day walking down the street, and at first that anger rose up. At first, he wanted to do all the things he had thought about doing and saying to his brother. And then he saw the face of the father who had shown him so much mercy. And all he could see now was his father. And N goes on to say, the gospel frees us to look into the eyes of even someone we hate and see the one we love. But you need to be utterly convinced that God is trustworthy with your hurt. You need to be utterly convinced that he is able, in his mercy and compassion towards you, see your healing through to completion and bring justice and mercy and healing to the other person as well. I'm going to invite us all to stand in a moment and we're going to declare the Lord's Prayer together. 
But before we do, I want to give you a moment to think about where you are on this ladder of light. To think about how willing you are to submit to the governance of the kingdom of God. And maybe you're here today and mercy feels easy. You've grown to a place in your journey that you're like, I desire mercy. I might have to grapple with it sometimes, but I know that's where I'm going to land. But maybe you're not there yet. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to start looking a run before, because like I said, like Spurgeon said, these are all interconnected. We can't get halfway up the ladder if we haven't started at the bottom. And so I want to encourage you, if mercy doesn't feel where you're at this morning, are you hungering and thirsting for the kingdom of God, for his rule and his reign in your life? Are you choosing meekness? Are you choosing to submit your will and your power and your authority to his? Have you mourned over your sin? Have you felt the weight of it and the joy of him taking it off you? Have you recognized that you are poor in spirit, that you are in need of a savior and all that God has? Where are you on that ladder of light? Remember, it's light. Sometimes these questions are hard to wrestle with, but the Father's heart is not to condemn you. It is to bring you conviction that will lead you into growth and transformation and the blessed, full, abundant life. So let's take that moment. Would you stand with me? You know, this prayer is a declaration of these beatitudes, that God's kingdom would come, that he would supply the bread that fills us, that he would enable us to walk in the way of forgiveness. And so as we declare it this morning, we're saying, Father, I choose to align myself with your ways. I choose to walk the blessed life with you and for your glory. So let's stand and declare it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Elam Christian Center podcast. Please subscribe to keep hearing more life-changing messages. For more information about our church, please visit www.elamchristiancenter.org.nz.